The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Sara Esther Crisp will now present her lecture, Stress Relief, Kabbalah and Psychology. So the topic we're doing today is stress relief. I want to begin by reading you a, a poem that I think does a really powerful job at kind of encapsulating and dealing with the issue of stress. So it reads as follows. If you can start the day without caffeine or pills, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help and relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the help of drugs, then you are probably a dog. So stress seems to be the topic everybody talks about, everybody's always sharing how stressed they are. It's kind of part and parcel of how are you doing? Oh, I'm so stressed out, right? It just seems to be this common trait we all have. And um, in a certain sense, it would be really nice if life just went through nice and smooth. You know, if there were no bumps in the road, if everything was, you know, flat and easy. And we will all reach a point in our lives where we get that nice, straight, flat line, and when our EKG has it, life is over. So life, by definition, is always going to be defined by ups and downs. We see this even very clearly when it comes to creation itself. It says, Vayehi Erev, Vayehi Boker, Yom Echad. It was evening, and it was day. And it was one day. No one gets through the day without a period of darkness. The darkness, the night, is part and parcel of a day. You cannot get through a day without that dark period. And the darkness is not necessarily negative. It's not necessarily bad, but it is concealed. Right? You know exactly where everything is when the lights are on. And suddenly you walk into that dark room and no matter how well you know it, you are likely going to like walk right into the corner of something or God forbid if you have kids or grandkids who left Legos on the floor and you walk in barefoot. I mean, uh, a torture that you would never have endured with the lights on, which is why Erev is from the word Erbuvia, which is chaos and confusion. And Boker is from Bikorit, which is clarification. Now, when it comes to stress, it is scarily enough the number one killer. 
the majority of deaths from stress, we have more deaths related to stress than illnesses, than car accidents, than anything else. And yet, the greatest irony in that is that stress is specifically what we feel when we are not dealing with life and death matters. To clarify, stress can be related to those issues, but you will never hear someone say or actually feel, I just came back from the doctor and I got this terrible prognosis, diagnosis, I'm so stressed out. It's not stressful. It is overwhelming. It is tragic. It is It is huge on a different level than stress. You hear people speaking about stress when there isn't enough time, there isn't enough money, there isn't enough help, there aren't enough resources, and even more ironic, very often people speak about stress in terms of things that are great. Oh my gosh, the wedding's next week, and we don't have the caterer set yet. It's so stressful. I'm so stressed out. It's a wedding. It's not a funeral. It is a good thing. So very often, what stresses us out are the things that actually are solvable. The things that are not solvable, all the money in the world won't make them go away. All the help, all the time, all the resources, those are not the things that stress us. Again, there are stressful parts to it. Yes, if God forbid you're dealing with a sick child, trying to get babysitting for your other kids and pick up from schools and meals made that stressful. But that's not really what is the issue at hand. The issue at hand is tragic and overwhelming. There are stressful components to it, but it's a different thing. There is an amazing book called The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. You can watch a TED video, an extended one, a shorter one. The, uh, the author of this book, she is a Stanford uh, professor, Kelly McGonigal. She's actually a Stanford-trained um, health psychologist, I think, not necessarily a professor. And she has this entire research and work she put out about stress and that how we actually view our stress has a major effect on how it actually affects us. And um, interestingly enough, they did a study. It was 30,000 American adults over an eight-year period, and it was through University of Wisconsin, and they tried to track basically how many people died um, who considered themselves very stressed out. And what they found is that the people who considered themselves stressed out and felt that stress was bad for you had a 43% increase. But the people who were stressed out and didn't think that stress was bad for you or harmful had the best prognosis for living. More so than the people who categorized themselves as not being so stressed out. So when we think about stress and when we utilize it as something that is working to help us, right? Why is my heart beating fast? 
Why am I getting, you know, this need for more oxygen in my lungs? Why am I sweating? If we replace stress and think about it even as excited, it changes absolutely everything. Is it working towards us and to help us or is it working against us and to harm us? So just the way we even view it, and if you think about this, right, like right before a massive football game, and I cannot really go into any detail on sports, so I'm thinking it's not the World Series, it's the Super Bowl, right? Right before the Super Bowl, we're going to have, you know, the guys who are going to come out, they've got a ton of money on their heads, they've got a lot of pressure, probably a lot of stress to perform well, to do well, to win this game. They are not meditating in the locker room. They are pumping themselves up. They are stressing themselves out because when they got on that field, they want to perform. Stress, when utilized appropriately, motivates us. It makes us move. It makes us get things done, right? No house gets cleaner than finding out people are coming over in 10 minutes, right? That is the fastest way to get your house clean. It is unbelievable what you can accomplish in 10 minutes when you know somebody's heading on over. Stress works when utilized properly. So where do we see this then in in the Torah discussion on what stress is? And we have a statement in Proverbs that reads, that stress in the heart of a person will cause dejection or sadness, but a good word will turn it into joy. Now, the one thing no one stressed out wants to hear is, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right? When we're stressed out, we are not capable of receiving that nice, kind, good word. We're stressing. We are completely not receptive. So the Talmud understands this because there's a discussion in the Talmud about this very verse and how it actually needs to be understood and the work that needs to be done so that this statement can make sense and work without a fistfight breaking out. But interestingly, it starts, when there's stress in the heart of a person, not the mind. Stress is not intellectual. It's emotional. We very rarely are stressed out because intellectually it makes perfect sense, but emotionally we're feeling totally overwhelmed. And another hint before we analyze this verse is that the word for stress or worry is a daga. Daga has four of the first five letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It has an aleph, it has a gimel, it has a dalid, and it has a hay. What is it missing? The second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the bait. The bait is numerically equivalent to two, reminding us that we're not supposed to get through life alone. It's not weak to ask for help. It's human. We were created to need another, which is why our Torah begins with the letter bait. Bait also, as a word, means by it, which is feeling at home. If we feel at home within ourselves, we're not stressed. 
If we feel there's someone else we can count on that's going to help us through things, we're not stressed. When you take the bait and the buy it out of the word, which is what the word is, it's missing the bait, the second letter, you have daga. You have that stress. So the Talmud then has this discussion that goes through and explains three different ways we can understand this. By the way, one other really powerful idea with needing another is the former Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy, said that loneliness, not feeling that you have anyone you can count on, puts your body in a constant state of stress. And that loneliness is as dangerous to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Having another person, other people, a friend, someone that you feel will help you through those stressful times already helps solve that problem. So the statement is read as a question. There's the stress in the heart of a person. How do we address this? So the first one is yashchena. Suppress it. Cut it down to size. Put it into perspective. There's this great quote that reads, you wouldn't worry so much what people think of you if you realized how rarely they do. So much of our, of our stress is actually worrying about what everybody else is going to think. How is this going to look? How am I going to come across? Is this going to be, you know, the way I want to be seen? What are other people going to think? What are they going to say? And in truth, we're all so hyper-worried about ourselves that we're rarely paying so much attention to what anybody else is actually doing or saying. And, and sometimes you can play almost this game with yourself that if you're hyper-concerned with, you know, if you're wearing the same thing, will someone notice? Think if you can actually recall and remember a single outfit anybody else during the entire day wore. And you probably can't because you probably weren't paying so much attention to it. So cutting it down to size there's actually a cute story told of a kid who was home for winter break, and he was back with his family. His father passed by his bedroom, and it was completely neat and clean, which made him incredibly nervous. And um, he also noticed that there was a letter on the bed that said, Dad. Now he was really nervous. He opens up the letter and says, Dad, I'm sorry to be writing this to you rather than having a face-to-face conversation, but I thought maybe the news will come across better in this way. But I want to let you know, I've decided to drop out of college. It's just, it's not the right place for me. It's not what I want to be doing. I have decided I want to really just travel the world and meet people and try new things. I've fallen in love. We're going to be, you know, traveling together. We uh, have sold everything we have, including the car you bought me for graduation. Um, I emptied my trust fund. Mazel tov, you're going to be a grandfather soon. Um, you know, and, and this is really what I think is, best for me and is going to make me happy. So I hope you can try to respect my wishes and my choices. And I'm sorry 
that I'm telling you this in a letter. Love, Jason. When he eventually flips the paper over, it says, P.S. None of the above is true. I'm at Mark's house. My report card is on your desk. So, you know, suddenly those C's and D's, you have the car, you're still enrolled. No babies. (laughs) Trust fund is in the bank. (sighs) Study harder. Do better. (laughs) Put more work into it, right? Cut it down to size. When that's the focus of it, if the presentation was, you know, I didn't do so great this semester, I have some C's and D's, what, do you know how much I'm paying? Do you have any idea how hard we worked for this? And everything that comes with it, cut it down to size. Put it into perspective. All the more so if our stress is related to something positive. Thank God I am making a wedding. Yes, thank God I've got three kids leaving for camp tomorrow morning and none of them have tennis shoes. Wow, they're so lucky. This is so great. Great thing there are stores that sell them that I can drive to in my car and purchase with my money. Right? Cutting it down to size, recognizing that these things are fixable. We may not always have the means to fix them, that's for sure, but that they are fixable and that there are people who would do anything in the world to have a fixable problem. That's cutting it down to size. The next way of understanding this is ish when there is the stress in the heart of a person. Yas chena. Separate from it. Ignore it temporarily. You are going to have to come back to it and deal with it, but for a specific period of time, remove yourself from the situation. The best way to not be thinking about what is stressing you out is to be thinking about someone else, worrying about someone else, helping someone else, right? So spend an afternoon volunteering at the children's hospital, and I guarantee you whatever is stressing you out is not going to feel so completely overwhelming anymore. Right? It both cuts it down to size and it allows you to kind of keep it out of your head temporarily. We cannot multi-think. We are always thinking something. I'm doing an entire talk actually on mind control tomorrow, so we'll get a lot more into that. But the mind is never empty. We actually have a beautiful allusion to this. It says, in regards to Joseph and the pit, that the pit was empty, but then it continues, there was no water. Okay, well, yeah, empty is kind of, one would assume, if it's empty, there's no water. Good. But then the commentary goes ahead and says, oh, but there were snakes and scorpions. Hmm, then that won't be empty. Right, so what's going on here? It's empty, but let me specify there's no water. And then let me add in that you got some snakes and scorpions in there. So the explanation in Kabbalah is that the pit is our mind. The mind is never empty. We are always thinking something. The water 
It says, Maim Chaim, the waters of life. Torah is compared to the water. If you have positive, healthy, life-giving contents and thoughts, that's one thing. If those are missing and it can't be empty, it will be snakes and scorpions. It says that the poison of the snake is in its head, and the poison of the scorpion is in its tail. That there are people who never get things off the ground. Their stress gets them from the get-go. Ah, I'm not going to be able to do it. It's too much work. I'm never going to succeed. I don't have the money. And that's where the stress gets them. For other people, it's the end of the project. I currently have three books that are almost published. <laughs> Scorpion. <laughs> right? Like, it's almost there. But then the poison gets you. Then it gets you at the end. Then you're not sure. Then you maybe want to rework. Then you want to go back. Then you think you should add in something else. And we don't complete it. So it says with the mind that when we separate from something and we allow it to fill with something else that's healthy and that's positive and that allows us to focus on other people, then when we go back to our own situation, we've already shifted how we're thinking. All right, so this is... a. Uh, Another another good um, good lesson for this is you can always just go to IKEA and buy just about anything and make it because you're either going to focus on those directions or you're going to be at like risk of losing a digit. <laughs> so there are times we just need to get our head somewhere else so that it's almost like you know control alt delete when your computer screen freezes. Sometimes you need to do a full shutdown, but that when you reboot it's going to look a little different. From here, we have the, uh, the final one. There's also this great statement that says, don't believe everything you think. All right, that sometimes it needs to be altered a little. So, da believe ish yesichena. When there is this stress in the heart of a person, talk about it. Articulate it. Put it into words. We very often not only feel weak asking someone for help, but you will very often hear, oh, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to, you know, make somebody else go out of their way for me. And where we lose sight of what's actually going on is that when we reach out to someone and we allow them to help us, we've given them this tremendous opportunity that we have no idea maybe how much that person needed, how much that person wanted to help, how much that person was looking for something to do, how much that person wanted their own number two of separating and ignoring their situation and badly wanted to focus and put their energy into another situation, and we wouldn't let them, and we wouldn't ask them, and we're suffering all by ourselves when there are all these people who would love to lend that hand or lend that money or lend their time or lend their house or whatever it might be. Very often when we look at what would take away my stress right now, and again, and we're talking about the things that have a solution that are solvable, there are people out there that therefore are those answers, that have those answers, that have those resources. And if we don't ask, they're never going to necessarily know. When it comes to articulating, then, we have an obligation on both sides. There's remembering to ask for help when we need it, 
And then there's remembering to offer and verbalize that help to others, even if they haven't asked. To kind of always assume both. The same way we know we might be hesitant to reach out, to assume somebody else might be hesitant to reach out. There was a very, very, very powerful story that I heard a number of years ago. It actually happened, I believe it was in the year, it was, it was in the year 2000. I heard it, I don't know, probably nine years later. I heard it from the guy himself. His name is Kevin Hines. And I was at a, um, an event organized by an organization called Minding Your Mind, which was intended to really help break the stigma of mental illness, to get people talking, to be able to say when somebody's feeling overwhelmed. And just one qualification, right now in this class, we are talking about stress. I very purposely did not use the word anxiety because anxiety as a disorder is another category, and that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about the kind of stress that most people experience and feel on a day-to-day basis in their lives. Now, he told this story, and he was suffering from very, very, very severe depression, and he had reached an incredibly low point, the lowest point, actually, that one can reach in his life, where he felt pretty convinced that the world would be a better place without him in it. He had made himself a promise, he was living in San Francisco, that he was going to take the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge. And yet, if anyone along the way said hello to him, asked how he was doing, said anything that made him feel that he was being noticed, that he wouldn't jump. So he takes the bus. No one speaks to him on the bus. It's the end of a long day of work. Everybody's got their headphones on. They're looking at their phones. They're busy. The bus is clearing out. He is the last person to get off this bus, kind of hoping maybe the driver will say something to him. The driver does get off the bus, you know, and that's basically what he hears. Like, last stop. Come on. You know, I've got to, like, do my paperwork and get out of here. As he passes the driver, he's busy with his paperwork, doesn't even notice him. He walks up and down the bridge. At one point, he's even stopped by a couple who ask if he'll take their picture. But they're so consumed with one another that they don't even notice the desperate state this man's in. And at that point, he has all the proof he needs. He feels completely convinced that he is just unnoticeable. And his absence will not make any difference. The Golden Gate Bridge is uh, 245 feet high. This is not a cry for help. There are very, very, very few survivors of this jump, and it is the number one spot in America for suicide. He scales the bridge, and he jumps. He said the second his feet left the railing, the whole way down. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He hit the water, broke virtually every bone in his body, but he was alive. Now, of course, he was going to drown because he couldn't keep his body 
afloat. He had so many broken bones. He hears rescue right away because the rescue's there. They are usually doing actually not rescue, but recovery. Sirens are coming out. They get to him however many minutes later. And the first rescue guy says, wow, do you have any idea why you're alive right now? Well, there's obviously a reason you're here because no one survives this jump. And right now, there are a group of sea lions swimming underneath your body that have been keeping your head above water from the second you hit. They've been underneath you the entire time. Why do we know this story? Because Kevin Hines talks about it. He travels the country telling the story. I just found out his name. I didn't remember it when I heard him in 2009. Recently, it started showing up again in little Facebook videos, but I got a message, I don't know, a year ago from a high school kid, a non-Jewish high school kid in a southern state who wrote me and said, I want you to know your article saved my life. What article? I ran a lot of articles. I didn't necessarily think any of them were of that caliber to save a life. But in an article that I actually never, ever remembered writing, I told the story. I wrote it out. And this kid was feeling suicidal and read it and felt that I was his reaching out, that message he needed to hear. He made it into a short film and is now in college for filmmaking because that helped reveal his passion to want to do film. And he reached out to me to let me know the impact that it had. We have no idea when we say hello to someone, let alone, hey, are you okay? How are you? We have no idea. We have no idea whose life could literally be dependent on needing to know that someone is noticing, that someone is out there, that someone cares, which is why da'aga, stress, worry, when those letters are turned around, spell agada, which is to speak. Our original statement, at this point, that good word can turn it into joy. We have the work we need to do. We cut it down to size. We try to focus on other people. We try to reach out and ask for help. And at that point, when somebody says something, even if we didn't do that work before, when somebody says something nice, kind, that compliment, it can totally shift and change our reality. It takes away that loneliness that's as dangerous as 15 cigarettes a day just by saying hello. One of the most amazing things about living in Vermont is that everybody waves to each other. It's really hard to be in a bad mood when everybody waves as you drive down the road. Right? You can be like, oh my gosh, I'm running so late. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it's like, it kind of snaps you out of it. 
Because you don't want to like growl at the person who just waved at you. So you got to smile and you have to be nice and you have to realize people are looking. And it's kind of rude to not wave back. I actually, you know, try to teach my kids when they're learning how to drive that, you, you know, it's best to keep one hand at the top of the wheel so you can do like the two finger wave, you know, and you don't have to actually let go of the wheel. But it makes a huge difference. Knowing people notice. Knowing people care, noticing somebody is just smiling. The best compliment in the world is the one that didn't need to be said. Right? When you know somebody, we, we go into like, you know, compliment. Oh, you know, that I, I love your tie. Oh, you know, okay, I, I shouldn't use guy examples. I don't know how you guys compliment each other. With women, right? I love your earrings. Oh, yeah, I love your dress, right? It can be sometimes feeling like, well, you said something nice, so I had to counter back with something nice. But when, like, the random person in Rite Aid says to you, like, wow, you you have beautiful eyes. And it's not, like, weird or creepy. We're talking about, like, just a nice, sincere compliment. Or I love those shoes. Or beautiful smile. It changes everything. Because they didn't need to say it. So you know they meant it. It feels sincere. And it completely changes and reminds us, I've been noticed. Somebody paid attention. Somebody, you know, went out of their way to say that. So we have both the responsibility for ourselves to share those words with others and likewise the responsibility within that when we're struggling to go ahead and speak to another. And then we have a really powerful lesson that we see in the Torah as well, that uh, Job, Eov, is our classic sufferer who spoke to people, who reached out, who verbalized, who had the friends that he reached out to. And there's a beautiful interpretation that goes through the four friends he spoke to and shows how they're also both psychological approaches and ways of dealing with what it is that we're experiencing. So it says that the first friend that he spoke to, Eliphaz, represents the nefesh level of the soul, which is the lowest level, actually, of the soul, and that's behavioral or instinctual psychology. Change how you act. Fake it till you make it. Just do it. Right? Change your behavior. Smile at five people during the day. Force yourself to say hello when you usually walk with your head down. Right? I mean, I don't know how many people are New Yorkers here, but one of the things I find, at least, especially coming from Vermont, is it's really overwhelming when people are like, I can go to New York to go out to lunch with friends. Like, that's my entire purpose of being in New York is to, like, have lunch with friends. And by the time I get to the restaurant, I'm sweating because I ran. I don't know why, but I felt the need to walk really fast to keep up with what I was around. I bumped into people. I had almost gotten hit by a car. Like, my heart is, ra- I am stressed out trying to go to lunch, right? So it's, it's sometimes we get so caught up that we don't even notice that stopping and paying attention. So Doing, just doing, changing the behaviors to something positive and something stress-relieving or stress-transformative is a better way, where we see how it is motivating and how it's positive. 
this is also the idea, hamaisa huhayikar, that ultimately it's the action that counts. Right? We even have, and we'll talk about this more in mind control, but that if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you'll come to do the right thing for the right reason. The next is the ruach level of the, of the soul, emotional intelligence, and this is when he speaks to Bildad, and this is changing how you feel, listening to powerful stories, right? Sometimes we just feel like we can't even tap into our emotions. We're too cut off. We're too overwhelmed. We're just not feeling, right? Listening to a Hasidic story, you know, uh, on a totally different plane, watching like those soldier reunion videos. I mean, you really want to cry. I just, you know, there are so many things that can get our emotions going, even when we're not yet at a place or doing anything differently. The next one, it says, is the neshama level. And this is cognitive psychotherapy. This is when he speaks to Zophar. And this is changing how you think. Some people can change what they do, but they haven't changed what they actually think. Other people have to start with like an intellectual shift. That I'm not going to, you know, just give up drinking diet soda because, you know, you've told me it's bad for me or even how it makes me feel. But I'll read an academic, you know, scientific study and that will do the trick for me. Like I'll actually shift how I think about something and then that will change how I act and how I feel. And then we have the Chaya level, the fourth, which is Aliyah ben Brachel. This is transcendental psychology. This is spirituality. This is the three before, that knowing that there is something even greater than how we think and how we feel and how we act. And this is, it says, the level of Mashiach, that Mashiach will be our collective psychologist. It says that when Mashiach comes, he has a lot of uh, questions to answer. And there's also a beautiful illusion that the word Mashiach is the word Messiah, which is a communicator. So again, this idea of speaking and reaching out. And then ultimately, the Yechida level, the highest level of the soul, which is the source of all healing, which is going beyond what we have here, where we can never ultimately feel alone because it says, Hashem Orli, when I'm sitting in darkness, God is my light. That you might feel you have no one to talk to and you don't have friends and you don't have family and you don't have neighbors and nobody's waving to you as you go down the road, but ultimately, we're never alone. We always have... Our Father, we always have not someone to turn to, but uh, our Creator to turn to. It's actually an illusion why the Ten Commandments start with the letter Aleph, which is one, numerically equivalent to one, and the Torah begins with Beit, which is numerically equivalent to two. So it's both the idea of needing another and needing Hashem, but the two letters together spell Av, which is Father. And to just end with another beautiful quote, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions, and I'll hand out the handout. But uh, another, this is a great bumper sticker that I saw that kind of uh, reminds us of what, what this is really saying. It said, uh, don't tell God how big your problems are. 
tell your problems how big your God is. That uh, there are times we feel like we can't do it and we need more help. We need more help than even another person can give us. But ultimately, if we're facing it and if it's part of what we have to go through, those resources are out there. We have to look for them. And most importantly, we have to ask for them and verbalize them. So we should all be blessed to utilize the stress we feel in a healthy and productive and transformative matter and to always be blessed to have stress that means that our problems are solvable and fixable. So thank you very much. We have uh, nine minutes if anybody has any questions. Perfect. So I'm glad you actually brought that up because by no means was I trying to be dismissive. Actually, in another talk I was just in, um, the Dr. Novak was saying how stress and anxiety are close cousins. They're very, very, very related. The reason I separated them and was saying that is because I think it's dangerous when there is something that is a condition, like let's say anxiety disorder, that really needs to be taken very seriously and treated for and is not necessarily coming from a plausible cause and may need medication and, um, you know, if it's psychological counseling therapy versus the type of stress that has a very understandable immediate connection. I have finals next week. My papers do at six in the morning and I haven't started it. And the reason I want to separate those is because very often people will deal with something that's severe like anxiety disorder and just be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Cut it down. Just don't worry so much. If you don't worry, it will go away. And they minimize it. That's what I mean. I mean, it should be taken on a whole nother level of seriousness than the stress we're dealing with now. Now, that said, everything we said I would absolutely, in conjunction with and in addition to a therapeutic model or ensuring that this person really had any other kind of treatment that might be needed, of course, this is going to help. But I would not reduce it to that because I've seen people who really are suffering and they're, they're basically um, encouraged to just kind of think their way out of it or feel their way out of it, not recognizing that it's bigger than that. So that, that's why I was making that distinction. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, be in touch if you have more questions. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings. And toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.